all and welcome to this week's episode of Aftermath. Today I'm really excited to bring you two interviews. We're going to be hearing from Jo Dodds. She's a councilwoman of the Bega Valley Shire and she's also the spokesperson for Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action. In this interview, I talked to Joe about the process where bushfire survivors for climate action were approached by the Environmental Defenders Office, where they're launching legal action to compel the Environmental Protection Agency, which is a state agency as part of the New South Wales government, where they're compelling them to mitigate greenhouse gases in order to avoid catastrophic fire damage in the future. So the first of this interview is Joe and what Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action is about. And then we move on to talk to Elaine from the Environmental Defenders Office. Elaine Johnson is a lawyer and she talked me through the legal basis for the case and what having a case like this one could mean for climate action in Australia. So without further ado, I'll start my interview with Joe. today with Joe Dodds who's been on the podcast before talking about her action as a local councillor and as the spokesperson for bushfire survivors for climate action. Joe, how are you going today? I'm going really well Eve. It's a beautiful bright sunny day here. Yeah that's always great. Uh, you've been getting a bit of attention at the moment for your legal challenge of the Environmental Protection Agency with the Environmental Defenders Office for their inaction on mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. How did you start approaching the EDO? And, you know, would you mind talking us through the process of getting this challenge started? Yeah, look, I can't take much of the credit for getting it started. It it kind of, this is the, the EDO's bread and butter. Um, so they came up with the the position and put it to us. So we are the now the litigants um, as the people who've been most affected by the failure of the EPA to have climate change policy and practice. So um, we've been working with the EDO for months and months now, making sure we had a good, strong case, doing all the sort of legally background things that we needed to do before we could take the case to court and that included negotiating with the EPA to see if they'd come to the party and produce those documents without us having to go to court but they the documents they did produce weren't up to the standard that we thought was applicable and they weren't willing to negotiate on that so in the end we thought right it's time okay and so would you mind are you allowed to say what kind of documents you were asking for Oh, just for a policy on uh, climate change is the biggest thing. So they had some overall policies that they forwarded to us, but none of them were specific enough to really give them the teeth that we need them to have to respond to climate yeah. change. So the basis is that there isn't an explicit policy on emissions reduction. Yeah. In terms of Australians needing protection, under the environmental protection laws, um, you can't go much bigger than what's happening with climate change and particularly the way bushfires are being driven to be more frequent and more ferocious with the warming of the climate. So that was the thing that we we want them to protect us from. So 
when it comes to environmental protection, if it's not including the effects of climate change, then we didn't think it was yeah, hitting the great. mark at all. And I know you've talked a bit about who bushfire survivors for climate action are on a previous podcast, but would you mind telling our listeners who are the people that make up the litigants? So who are the members? Yeah, sure. So we're, we're still a small group, but we've got a really diverse membership of people who have been impacted in some way by bushfires. So that runs from people who have fought fires as volunteers, uh, people who are professionals in emergency services, people who've lost their homes or businesses to bushfires and people who've been impacted living in areas where there are bushfires and having had to evacuate their homes, living in fear of losing their homes and contents. So it's a pretty broad range uh, and we would certainly welcome more members because we know there's a lot of people who've been impacted in ways they might not think are worthy of attention. But even if you've been living in an area where you were impacted by the bushfire smoke, and I know that many, many more people were impacted by the smoke than by the actual flames, that caused a lot of illness, uh, stress, breathing conditions. Um, It even had implications for heart conditions. So all of those people we would also count as bushfire survivors. So that that's the, the wide group that we've got. We come from all across Australia. We've got people in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia. Um, not sure if we've got any Tasmanian people yet. Someone from Alice Springs. So we're pretty big now in, in breadth. And our main mission is to talk about our personal experiences with bushfire as a way of raising the bigger issue of yeah, climate change. Yeah, and that's change. so important. Just getting back to the legal challenge then, considering you've got members in so many different states and territories, was there a reason that New South Wales EDO reached out? or? Well, I guess it was New South Wales EDO who, who began the process, but it's also the state in which we've got the most members, coincidentally, because the, this case had had begun long before the summer fires that we saw, the 2019-20 fires. New South Wales is probably the most affected state in those uh, fires. And I think, from my understanding, that the Bega Valley Shire, which is where I live, is one of the most affected shires, certainly in terms of um, the breadth of the fires. So it it's also time for New South Wales to lead the way. We haven't seen much action from the federal government. New South Wales is the next biggest state. So it would be nice if they led the way on acting on climate and showed the federal government and the other states uh, how to do this. Although, I'll note, uh, Western Australia just last week did, um, their EPA did do some great work in terms of climate policy. So other states are taking this action now as we'd like to see. Okay, and and that's the basis of the legal challenge, isn't that you are asking the EPA for damages or anything like that, it's to encourage them or legally compel them to legislate to take action on climate is that correct yeah we don't we don't want money it's not that's not what this case is about it's about the epa's remit is to protect the environment and the biggest threat to the environment in australia at the moment is climate change so we need them to be tackling that front on as it is squarely in their remit so we need to see those policies and to see the action coming out of um, the EPA, and on on outside of that, we we don't intend this as a criticism or a, 
Um, we don't want to go into battle with the EPA. We want to support them to do the good work that we know that we, they can do in this space. And alongside that, we're very supportive of the Minister for the Environment, New South Wales, Matt Keane. His position has been really good. We've been impressed with what he's been saying about climate change, the work he's done in that space. But we know it's also really hard in this environment of um, people pushing back against uh, addressing this issue, um, particularly the big mining and fossil fuel sectors. So we we want to really praise uh, the Minister and say we, we understand how hard it is and keep going. We're on your side and we really appreciate what you've done so, yeah. so far. I just, when you were talking about the community and and how you're willing to work together to move forward, I just thought how impressive that is considering you are by the name of your organisation, Survivors. How, as a community, are you navigating, you know, the really personal and really immediate impact of the fires as well as thinking so broadly and so systematically to combat the long-term risk in the future? I think we're lucky that we've got a really good tight team on the board and we're people who have come to this reluctantly. None of us was planning on spending our days and nights working on this, but, you know, we've all seen what the future's doing, what, what's going to come to everybody if we don't act urgently on climate. So we're people who find it hard to sleep at night if we're not doing something during the day that we hope makes a difference to slow that down and, and hopefully one day stop the escalating risks. So yeah, it's hard for some people whose recent experiences with fires are really present for them or they're struggling to rebuild their home. I mean, we've got people from the Tathra fire who still still haven't even laid the first foundation for their new homes, even though they were well insured, even though they did everything right. Two years later, they're still in rented accommodation and, and waiting to put that first, you know, bit of work into the to the ground. And we've got other members who were unfortunately lost homes in this season's bushfires who are also speaking out. So... People are really stepping out of their comfort zone to do a lot of this work, um, but it, they're doing it because they feel passionately that they're the people who need to speak out now about what it feels like to lose everything in a bushfire and what it's costing Australian communities because there's a lot of talk about how much it will cost to address climate change and that's never balanced against what it is already costing Australian communities to not address climate change um, sufficiently. Uh, because it's costing our jobs, it's costing our homes, it's costing all of the treasured things we keep in our homes and probably worst of all for many of us, it's costing our peace of mind. We feel afraid for most of the year now about the coming warmer or hot days or when the winds blow hard, we're much more nervous, we're looking to the sky and looking for smoke and on alert, so... You know, it really it really changes your perception of home and yeah. safety. And as a coalition, you're taking that to court, which is incredibly brave. And I'm so impressed. It's kind of like not having anything to lose. <laughs> not that we would lose our homes over this. It's not set up that way. But when you, like for me, I'm sitting in my house, which fortunately didn't burn down in the fire that came onto our property. But I sit here and now I look around and I go, well, it's it hasn't burnt down in the last two fires in the last two years, 
But given the rate of change, and we're only at about 1.1 degree of warming so far, even if we just stop at the 1.5, the risk of my house burning down is so much higher than it was when we started building 20 years ago. So I just look at this house and go, well, it's going to burn. I don't know if it's in five years or 10, but I'm completely convinced that sooner or later this house is gone and probably sooner rather than later. So it's a really acute feeling of, yeah, that environmental protection is ultimately human protection. Yeah, and it's the protection of everything. Like I, I don't see myself as a separate thing to the place where I live because I live in a forest and there's a saying, everything in the forest is the forest. And I'm really feeling that these days, that I'm part of this bigger system. I can't just remove myself from this place amongst gum trees and think that I'll be any safer anywhere else. I can go to the suburbs of Melbourne where my father lives and I look around there now and I go, it's as, it's as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than where I live now because there's so many people who live in those suburbs and, you know, same in Sydney. So for me, there is nowhere safe anymore. It's about keeping everywhere safer. I can't run away from this threat. I have to deal with it because I'm part of it. I'm part of this environment. Um, so, I, you know, that's the message that I, that I think a lot of the bushfire survivors are trying to, to get out there, that, that we have to face this. And it's horrible to have to face it, but okay, we have well, to. Well, we might leave it there, but thank you so much, Joe. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um, just if people want to keep following the case, I think it'll go to court in May and we're very happy to do a catch-up in May or whenever there's developments. So win or lose, this case is important because it's a test case. So we'd be hoping that people are following this and that win or lose, at the end of this, we'll at least have advanced the cause of making the environment safer for, for everybody. Yeah, so it's in it's in May at the New South Wales Land and Environment Court. That's right, yeah, Land and Environment Court. Okay, yeah. well, we'll definitely check in on, on how you guys are going. Brilliant. Look forward All to right, it. thank you, Joe. Thanks, Eve. See ya. Thanks again for Joe for coming on. It's so awesome to have such a passionate and impressive friend of the Climactic Network. Like Joe said, she's one of the litigants for this case. But I also wanted to talk to one of the lawyers because the ins and outs of this case is kind of interesting. Joe said it's a test case. That means that the legal arguments being made haven't really been made before in Australia. And that's what makes this case so interesting. I'm a bit of a noob when it comes to law. So if you are less of a noob, I'm sorry that I might ask some pretty simple questions. But I found this talk with Elaine really interesting. And in particular, how the Environmental Defenders Office is hoping to compel not just the state, but the federal government and other state governments to take meaningful climate action and mitigate for carbon emissions. So you're one of the principal solicitors taking legal action against the Environmental Protection Agency based on the 2019 and 2020 bushfires. Can you tell us who you're representing? So we're representing a group called the Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action, and they're a group of 
individuals from across Australia who have been affected by bushfires in different ways. Some of them have suffered uh, loss of their homes, others are firefighters and others are from regions that have been heavily impacted by bushfires. What is the legal basis for their case? So our client is taking a case uh, in the Land and Environment Court in New South Wales and they are seeking orders from the court by way of mandamus, which is a, a particular legal term that means that the court um, can make orders against a government authority to, to fulfil a statutory duty. And the statutory duty that our client um, is pursuing is a duty that we say the Environment Protection Authority holds to make policies to ensure environmental protection. Where was the failing of the EPA to protect the environment in your opinion? Where, what issues have they failed to mitigate in order to create the bushfire crisis that we saw? In the case, we say that the EPA has this general duty to create policies to ensure environmental protection. And we say that the EPA is failing to do that because they don't have any policy on climate change and they don't have a policy on greenhouse gas emissions. The Environment Protection Authority is responsible for regulating pollution in New South Wales, and that's one of its key functions. And it regulates all kinds of different pollutants, but it doesn't regulate what is arguably the most harmful form of pollution known today, which is greenhouse gases that are contributing cumulatively to the problem of climate change, which is destabilising every aspect of the environment. So what we say in the case is that given that the EPA is empowered and in fact we say required to have policies that ensure environmental protection, the absence of a climate change policy and one that addresses greenhouse gas emissions, the most harmful pollutant, amounts to a breach of their statutory duty to ensure environmental protection. That's a big case then. And so does that then set a broader precedent for other EPAs in the country because this is in the New South Wales Land and Environment Court? Is that one of the hopeful outcomes? So one of the things that we um, allege in this case is that, that in order to ensure environmental protection, um, any reasonable authority in the position of the EPA would have policies that do certain things to um, ensure a safe climate. We say that any reasonable authority in the position of the EPA would have policies to address the topics of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, to address the impacts of greenhouse gas emissions, to regulate sources of direct and indirect greenhouse gas emissions and to do that consistently with limiting global temperature rise to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius and to have policies that are calculated to keep greenhouse gas levels at um, a level that's appropriate and consistent with the best available science. So if, um, if in this case the court accepts that in order to ensure environmental protection, any reasonable agency would need to do those things, then yes, I do think it would have, um, it would have implications for other agencies, um, both federal and state across the country. And so 
you know, in the event that you win the case, how does that legal mandate work for the EPA? Like what kind of timeline would they then have? Like what are they then compelled to do after the legal case is resolved? So if, if we're um, successful in this case, the EPA would be ordered by the court to develop environmental quality objectives, guidelines and policies to ensure environmental protection, or alternatively, they would be required to prepare draft policies that then go to public exhibition. The EPA would then be required to go away and carry out those orders, and uh, there's no particular timeline in the orders but um, every day obviously that the agency is in breach of the court order is problematic to the agency so mm. you'd expect that um, those orders would be carried out um, in a timely manner following um, any successful outcome. Okay so you're going to the Land and Environment Court. What is the Land and Environment Court? That's a really good question. So the Land and Environment Court is, is of the same status as the, as the Supreme Court in New South Wales, um, except that it's a specialist court. So while it has all of the powers of the Supreme Court of New South Wales, um, it deals only with environmental matters. So we're fortunate in um, this country and in New South Wales to have a court that is a specialist environmental court and, and understands and hears daily um, environmental uh, litigation. Okay, and what sorts of cases are you using to build this case? So are there examples in the past of um, other cases where uh, you've, where parties have successfully compelled the EPA to act on a certain pollutant? Um, no, so this case is what we call a test case, and it's a test case in the purest sense in that there is no other case that has sought these kinds of orders um, in relation to the EPA's functions and powers and responsibilities. So it is in that sense a landmark case because it's breaking new ground and and we hope that we'll be successful in the litigation. There was a case that um, the Environmental Defenders Office ran um, which came out last year from um, also the Land and Environment Court which um, made news around the world um, where the Land and Environment Court for the first time refused uh, coal mine development on the basis, including on the basis of its impacts on climate change and the global carbon budget. Now that was a totally different type of case but it was important that in that case um, the court heard evidence about the global carbon budget, about the urgency of the problem of climate change and made some significant findings in relation to um, the global problem of climate change needing to be addressed at multiple um, levels, including at um, local, local levels as well. Well, that's a really important case in and of itself and I wish you the best of luck in this current case. Thank you very much. And thanks for coming on. No problem. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Elaine and Joe for such interesting talks. 
it's so interesting how the repercussions of these bushfires are propagating not just through science and communities, but also through our legal system. I'm really interested to see how the case goes. Next week is going to be a bit of a different episode. As you've probably heard in these episodes, I'm planning on riding my bike from at least Nara to Malakuta with the potential of riding further to other fire-affected communities. I want to hear from people on the ground. And what's important about the next episode is that when I talk to people on the ground, I want them to be honest with me. And I would feel disingenuous to ask them about such a hard topic without expressing how I feel myself. So next week's actually going to be an episode of Feeling the Change with Bronwyn Gresham. It's another podcast here on the Climactic Network. But the difference is, is that I'm the one being interviewed. I'm going to tell my story of my experience with trauma and climate change in the hopes that people will feel comfortable to tell me theirs. All right, see you next week. This episode of Aftermath was produced by Mark Spencer, Maddie Charrington, and me, Eve Brennan. We're part of the Climactic Collective. Music is by Hayley Meadows. You can find links to us on social media as well as our Patreon page in the show notes. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.